The views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. It is time for Break the Business, where we empower any creators and have some fun along the way. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. You have caught this fine program on a wonderful day, on a fabulous day worth celebrating. For today is Ugly Sweater, Ugly Holiday Sweater Day here at Break the Business. For those of you checking out the live stream, you are being uh, given a special treat because we are donned in our ugly holiday sweaters. Um, my ugly holiday sweater is brought to you by me decorating my Christmas tree right before we started the show, and I just grabbed the light-up ribbon off the tree and uh, trimmed myself with it, and so now I'm going to be lighting up for the rest of the show. And I'm not the only one lit up around here. We got lots of fantastic holiday sweaters, including the holiday sweater being donned by our guest co-host this week, First time ever guest co or co-hosting the show. Excited to have one of our friends of the podcast back, Martin Mayers, joining us. Hey, Martin. Hey, Ryan. How are you, my friend? Doing very, very well. Canada's Prince of Piano himself. <laughs> what a joy to have you here. Fantastic ugly holiday sweater, sir. This is courtesy of Home Alone. You can't see, but it says, Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. And a happy new year. And a happy new year. Yeah. <laughs> Keep the change. Keep the change, you filthy animal. <laughs> Um, fantastic. I, I, I think I wore out my VHS of Home Alone 2 lost in New York. I mean, at at one point in my life, uh, I, I could just recite that entire movie chapter and verse. Like I still can't say the word pizza without saying it the way Tim (laughs) Curry says it and a pizza. (laughs) Oh, that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, courtesy of the Plaza Hotel. Ooh, you got a pretty good Tim Curry too. I love it. And just so we can show it off, uh, producer Lauren, I know you got the holiday sweater going on too. Can you can you show everybody your ugly sweater? When you guys give me a theme, you know you get it. Oh yeah. <laughs> hey, I feel like you didn't get the memo though, because your sweater is not ugly. That's actually quite stylish, producer Lauren. I'll bells on. Okay, I'll be well, there with ridiculous. bells on. <laughs> <laughs> and and your tiny little hat protruding from the top of your head—that's cute. Well, the big one wouldn't fit in the camera. <laughs> Fair enough, uh, Martin. When I'm I found not out that one, <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. He's the one who said we were all lit. There you go. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Martin, when I found out that you were guest co-hosting this week, which left me overjoyed, I was so glad you agreed to do it. Um, one of the first things that came to mind for me is how is when we bonded when you were a guest on the show a few months ago, bonded over our mutual love. Of Star Trek The Next Generation. Yes. I love it when the Star Trek fans join us on this program because it is one of my passions right after empowering indie creators. And over Halloween, I had the pleasure of uniting uh, two of my passions, one, of course, being the aforementioned Star Trek The Next Generation, the other one being my wonderful new baby, Nathan. And because he's at the age where he has to take any Holly, uh, Halloween costume we give him, and he has no choice in the matter, uh, this is what I dressed him up in. I'm sure you will appreciate this. <laughs> <laughs> that is a Spock in the making. It is. There Set is, phasers to adorable. There's nothing. Sorry, you know, next gen is all great, but that is Spock in the making. <laughs> it's a- he's, got, he's got the hair for it. That's he does. Awesome. He does look a little Vulcan-y in the right? in that, uh, with the, with like you know, the because yeah because my my kid you know for for those of you who are checking out in the radio audience that is my at the time I think uh, three months and change old son Nathan dressed up in a little baby Star Trek onesie for Halloween and the kid is not really mastered like smiling other than like in brief moments where you can make him laugh he has kind of, like resting baby face and you know, kind of looks just perpetually kind of grumpy all the time. And so in that picture, he's got some Vulcan vibes coming off him. He's got that look of like, I wonder 
should I go to Starfleet or stay <laughs> on Vulcan? That's right. He's pondering that in his mind. He is. Um, and you'll also you'll note he's got three rank pips on his collar, which means he is a commander. Um, I actually wore a Star Trek outfit as well for Halloween, so we, we had it together. My wife did too. It was like a group costume, and he what had the most wear? rank pips. So uh, he was actually the rank, he was the ranking officer on our away mission that is Halloween. What did your wife wear? Uh, she was she was in the uh, she was in the next generation gold. So she okay. was a operations officer. And I feel like if I say one more syllable about this, I will completely alienate the audience. No, nonsense. <laughs> and this Star show Trek will rules. only be entertaining to Ryan and Martin. And you know what? That's good enough for me. <laughs> That's all I need. Right? Because I'm very happy to see you, Martin. I'm super happy to see you, too, especially after a last encounter. I wasn't sure whether I was going to hear from you again, you know, challenging you to sing your sad song again and enticing you to sing it into the camera and into the microphone and let me just say you did such a fantastic job last time i'm almost tempted to do it ask you to do it this time but i'll spare you because it's the holidays you can't make me sing again even if i wanted to because this holiday ribbon i have which is connected to a plug is like tied around me <laughs> and if i try to leave the chair i'm pretty sure i'm going to choke to death well you could just sing a cappella. Oh God! No. <laughs> why would you? Why would you subject the listeners and myself to that? Why would he have to sing a cappella when we have one of the best piano players in the world? You only need to show. knock it off. Um, I have to go now. <laughs> oh, not now so great when they God, make you play on command. It's huh? warm in here. <laughs> well. I'm happy to see you, Martin. I'm also happy uh, with our guest that we're going to have in the next, seg next segment. Super cool dude. Lucas Sachs yeah. is going to be joining us. He's the director of booking for Brooklyn Bowl. What are the two coolest things in the world? If you said live music and bowling, you are absolutely right. And Lucas Sachs is in charge of two awesome mid-sized venues. Books, artists for them has been there for years. And I'm excited to get his perspective on something that I know is important to a lot of the kind of indie artists that listen to this show which is if I'm in that kind of range where I'm starting to play some good shows and I'm getting a decent following, but I haven't gotten a booking agent yet, mm -hmm. what do I have to do to attract the attention of, say, somebody who's in charge of booking a 900-seat venue in Brooklyn? Yeah. And I'm sure you know somebody who's been working in booking his whole career, he's going to have some perspective on this. I want to help our listeners cut through the clutter and get some of those cool gigs at a cool venue like Brooklyn Bulls. So I'm excited for that one. I want to know how to be booked into a 900-seat venue in Brooklyn. Hint, hint. <laughs> uh, I can't imagine that would be uh, a challenge for you. Um, certainly, if it was a 900-seat venue in uh, Toronto, they'd, they'd be all over. But even in Brooklyn, I'm sure, I'm sure you'd crush in Brooklyn. I think you mean Vancouver. Is it Vancouver? I just, you know, just figured yeah. anywhere in the great white north. <laughs> But you know, with with like the with the big thick black glasses, I feel like that's already kind of screaming Brooklyn. You'd fit right in. Well, I'm sure, yeah. I don't see why <laughs> I got I got well, nothing on that. And well, since we're talking about the great country that you are from, that is Canada. Uh, I can't help but think of the many wonderful things about your country that you have over the United States. Uh, chief among which, you know, the whole uh, poutine thing on, you know, with the French fries, uh, masterpiece. I don't know how a country as gluttonous as America didn't think of that first, but uh, like the first time I had one of those when I was in Canada was truly amazing. Uh, the other one, like when I, I remember I, t I, I went to Toronto, yeah, uh, crossing the bridge in, uh, from Niagara Falls. Uh, did okay. the you know Niagara Falls the Toronto train ride. And the train ride was wonderful. They didn't even check our tickets. Like, we mm. bought tickets. They didn't even check them. And, that's you know, weird. We, we thought that was strange. But, like, apparently, I'm, all I can guess is that, like, that's just Canada, right? Canada, Canada knows that you're not going to jump on a train that you didn't buy a ticket for. So they're not going to hassle you for it. Because that's what Canada is. In America, that would never happen. And another reason why Canada uh, has something beat on America is you all pay your artists when their music is played on terrestrial radio. We do. You do? We do. As does every other country in the world, except for, I believe, North Korea, 
Iran, China, all paragons of democracy, and the United States of America, which is a one of which is the only you know Western democracy in the world that does not pay their artists when their music is paid on played on terrestrial radio. We are a unique outlier in this regard. We have been for many many years, and whenever there has been a legislative movement here in the United States, Martin, to try to fix this problem, mm-hmm. it's always run into resistance. Uh, I don't know how it is in Canada, but in the U.S. Radio stations are primarily owned by large conglomerates that exert a tremendous amount of political power and can use that power to make sure that, say, they never have to pay performance royalties when music, when a, when artist music is played on the radio. And that's just, mm. and they, they've always had enough legislators bought and paid for on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans alike, right. to make sure that that never happens. And, uh, earlier this year, we had, U.S. Congressman Ted uh, Deutsch on the show, who uh, is, you know, I think he's just a retiring at the end of this month. I think he's just finishing up uh, his last term. And he's one of the strongest proponents of fixing this. He was one of the sponsors of what's called the American Music Fairness Act, yep. which would finally fix this problem once and for all, which would make American terrestrial radio stations just like every other terrestrial radio station in 99% of the world, and like satellite radio stations in the United States, in that all of those folks pay artists when their music is played on the radio. The um, And the reason why I'm bringing this story up again is because there was a perspective on this that I didn't know until about this week when I read an article about it. But apparently, not only is this policy hurting American artists in America, mm-hmm. it's hurting them abroad. Because apparently many countries throughout the world are adopting the position that, hey, if you're not going to pay artists, like say our artists, when they're played in the United States, we're not going to pay your artists Mm -hmm. when we play their music on the radio. And so not only is this policy, which is basically just a giveaway to big radio stations, hurting artists in America, it's hurting them all over the place. And that was just a, a dimension of this that just makes me even more resolute in the idea of why haven't we fixed this yet? Yeah. Um, I don't know how much of, uh, uh, has this ever been like, been something that's come up with you? Like, have you ever heard about this? Like when you, when you hear about say your music being played on the radio in the U S and you're not getting as many royalties. Well, the um, going back to what you said about the countries that, that don't pay this um, China has started within the past, I would say probably about seven or eight years, they have started paying royalties. Okay. And I was, I was actually shocked when I got one of my royalty payments because I looked at it and I went, there has to be a mistake. And so I went into SOCAN, which is our equivalent of like ASCAP and BMI, went into the account and looked at it and it said MSC, which is uh, Musical Society of China. And it was it was amazing how far back those royalties went. And every now and then, you know, they they show up. What's interesting in terms of how, you know, you talk about the radio stations and how they are owned in in the U.S. and how how large they are in terms of their power. Our radio stations don't necessarily have the power in terms of political influence, but they do have a lot of power in terms of, you know, they've gobbled up a lot of the independent stations. They've gobbled up a lot of the ones that that will play, you know, independent artists and, and put them onto Main Street platforms because a lot of times when formats don't work, especially here in Vancouver, we've had so many radio stations change format. Um, I can count on one that in the 18 years of, that I've lived in Vancouver, they have changed their format 12 times. You can't you can't keep up. You know, next year you'll see an ad that says 104.9, it'll be something something completely different. The way that SoCan works with the broadcasters here is that they have a mandate that a certain percentage of their advertising revenue goes towards paying royalties. And then when they submit the cue sheets and all that sort of stuff, and some of some of this is now being tracked digitally. And one could question, you know, we have the technology to track so much stuff. Uh, God knows social media has more information on us than I think we would ever want to have. <laughs> why, don't, why don't we have technology that can track this stuff, paid automatically, and, and it's taken care of? The, the one thing that I have run into in the States before is um, having radio stations say and send a document that says, if you want your music played on our station, you forego the sound exchange royalties. Mm. Those are the ones that they say, yeah, we're not paying those. 
I don't think I've ever had an issue with them saying we're not going to pay through ASCAP or BMI or something like that. It's a it's a strange time to be in the world of of music. You've got, you know, we're trying to get back after two years of being shut down because of COVID. We're trying to find a way to make money on singles and records, despite the fact that that industry doesn't exist anymore. You know, it's being... Um, Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon, you know, Tidal and all of these ones. Those are this is this is where everybody's listening to music. And it takes an insane amount of streaming to make any sort of money. Um the bigger acts that that are out there, you know, the uh the Billy Joels and the Bruce Springsteens, they've been making money for for eons. I don't know that we're going to be able to see that kind of record industry again unless something dramatically changes. Yeah, and I should mention, since you brought up ASCAP and BMI, just as a point of clarification, currently the law in the U.S. is that songwriters and people who own the publishing rights to a song are paid when songs are played on terrestrial AFM radio, AM, FM radio in the United States. The right. folks that don't get paid are the artists and the people who own the sound recordings, who own the masters. That is the that is the issue. And and uh, mm. you brought up sound exchange. Sound exchange has fixed this on the internet radio side. So if you're right. talking about Sirius XM or internet radio, artists, producers, musicians, labels, those yeah. folks get paid in the digital space, but traditional AM, FM radio, tune your dials, all those people are still not getting paid because of a quirk in copyright law in America that's just never been changed, even though there's no justifiable policy reason to keep it the way it is. So you guys don't have neighboring rights? Um, uh, what do you mean by neighboring rights? So neighboring rights in, in terms of, um, at least as far as I remember it, is that, um, you know, like for, for example, here, if, um, if my music gets played on an Air Canada flight alongside a commercial, it's considered an, uh, an audiovisual use. And so it's it's a side of that. There's um, there's also a collective um, that collects, you know, these types of royalties that you're talking about, where where artists and producers and uh, whatnot will register their work and what they've been part of. But it takes a lot of like it's not just a you register with SoCan you get all the you get all the royalties. There's so many of them, right? Yeah. There's uh, there's Song Trust and and these types of people and administrative publishing and and that type of stuff there's there's just so much royalty stuff that is out there that if you're not getting all the parts of the pot chances are you're leaving money on the table somewhere yeah that's right so when you talk about music being played say in a commercial you talked about audio visual that's another yeah. good um that's another example of this problem that i'm bringing up the reason why this happens in american copyright law is that there you know Generally, there is no what's called a public performance right for sound recordings. So whereas there is a public performance rights for musical compositions, like when you write a song. Yeah. And so that's why songwriters get paid through ASCAP and BMI here in the States or SOCAN, because those groups collect those royalties for the songwriters and the publishers. Mm -hmm. But since that right generally doesn't exist for sound recordings, there's no one to collect those rights, whether it's played on... AM FM radio or whether it's played in a TV commercial if, if a track is played in a TV commercial there's no royalty because there's no right right and and that's just always been sort of a quirk of American copyright law that they've only just recently started to patch up by creating a limited uh, public performance right for sound recordings in the internet radio satellite radio space mm -hmm. but that's a a more recent phenomenon that just doesn't still generally exist and so like a lot of artists are still missing out on a lot of royalties, but I, I will, I do want to get back to what you mentioned there at the end because that is a, that is an interesting challenge that I'm interested in getting your perspective on. As somebody who is an international musician and your music is played everywhere and, and you are probably quite dependent on the streams of income that you get from other countries, I'd love for you to reflect on sort of the unique royalty collection challenges you have. Knowing that that you know ASCAP and BMI, for example, don't collect performance royalties everywhere in yeah. the world, right? You need separate organizations to cover those things. I imagine you need a publishing company that has you know connections to lots of different performance societies all over the world. Uh, can you just walk us through the what I'm sure is a logistical nightmare, getting yourself paid all over the world as an artist and a songwriter? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's so much of it that that is still, you know, some 25 years into this business that is still foreign to me that you look at and go, oh, I didn't realize that there was money, you know, in this. Um, you get into things like, uh, you know, anytime that you upload music to any of the platforms, they give you all these options of, do you want it on Facebook? Do you want it on Instagram? Do you want it on TikTok? TikTok now has a thing that if you if you didn't write it, they won't, even if you record it and you have a cover license for it, they won't allow you to upload it. Um, collecting money around the world, you really have to look for those organizations. Uh, SoCan, ASCAP, BMI, those ones are fine. But it's the PROs, the performing rights organizations around the world. Those are the ones that, you know, collectively pool that stuff. That's just one part of it. Um, I can't even begin to sort of unravel all the various pieces of, you know, the I will say this when it comes to tax time and I go to my corporate uh, corporate uh, accountant and I bring him all the statements of these are the royalties and this is where it all comes from. By the end of it, it's like, I don't know how many pages long the guy looks at me and he says, can't you just condense this into one stream? And I'm like, well, no, this is coming from like 17 or 22 different streams, right? There is performance, there's broadcasting, there's sync licensing, there's ringtones, there's, you know, downloads, uh, downloads paid directly from, from your website and other people's websites like Bandcamp pay differently than, you know, what, uh, with something like Apple Music. Uh, pays. You can still buy, surprisingly to me, music on iTunes. You can stream it on Apple Music, but you can still buy an album for $9.99 on iTunes. And so all of this, all of this money, there's, you know, there's money everywhere. There's merch stuff and there's all this sort of stuff. The best advice that I have, and when you talk about, you know, these, uh, these rights and whatnot, I'd be surprised if, you know, the American Federation of Musicians didn't have some kind of conversation with your Congress about changing these things, because they're the ones that supposedly are, you know, uh, are vouching for the livelihood of musicians everywhere. There's no question about it. The AF of M, Sound Exchange, the RIAA, uh, there is plenty, you know, there are plenty of organizations, uh, Music First, there are plenty of organizations that are pushing hard on this being a significant lobbying effort. Like, it really is a clash of the titans in Congress, because on one side you have all those groups, and on the other side you have the National Association of Broadcasters that is very, very big and very, very powerful. And it's weird, because unlike so many things in the U.S. Congress where it's just Democrats versus Republicans, and Mm. whichever one is slightly more in power, that's going to carry the day, being pro and anti Getting artists paid on the radio is bipartisan both ways. You can find Democrats and Republicans who feel, you know, who are on both sides of this issue. And it makes for very strange bedfellows like the the uh, you know, the American Music Fairness Act has like a liberal Democrat and a conservative Republican as its two sponsors and preceding versions of that bill in previous Congresses always have that same situation it's uh, copyright law and music uh, it always has like the weirdest political alliances here in the states that you've ever seen but i just want to close with this final point just to make sure that artists understand this okay there is no legitimate policy argument for not paying artists labels producers musicians when music is when sound recordings are played on the radio the only reason it exists is because major radio conglomerates have a lot of political power and they can lobby for bad policy to remain. These groups say that the reason why they don't pay these royalties is because radio offers a promotion function for artists. Well, so does satellite radio, and so does internet radio, and those folks pay royalties. Terrestrial radio stations around the world promote artists, and they pay royalties. Um and they'll say, you know, the other thing they'll say is that, oh, if we if we make them pay a royalty, it's going to put the small independent radio stations out of business because they can't afford the royalty. The American Music Fairness Act, the law that's uh, being proposed right now, specifically exempts small radio stations from having to pay wow. any royalties. These are just the big stations. So there's no legitimate policy argument. So please don't let the the NAB's propaganda kind of change your thought on this like this is just you know when when your art is used you should be compensated for that uh in that vein martin with the time we have left uh last time we had you on you gave us a 
a pretty <laughs> blistering perspective on your relationship with Spotify. And I have no idea what you're talking about. That's right. You 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 love them. <laughs> Spotify can't get enough. Uh, you said you you had watched and and recently you said you'd watched a documentary that really kind of like lined up your perspective even more firmly about you know these kind of streaming services and what they're doing to artists' livelihoods. Uh, can you give us the latest on this? Yeah. So just in terms of what uh, what you said, the the one thing that I sort of want to want to finish with your thought about the the Musical Fairness Act is if streaming platforms aren't paying artists well radio stations are looking at that and going well if they're not why should we mm. the question is what happens if all of a sudden record labels publishers and artists say forget it i'm pulling my music right radio stations exist in a talk format and they exist in sport and all that sort of stuff but the majority of them play music what happens if all that music disappears if you can't pay for the artists to create that music Artists don't have a way to, there is literally no money being made right now in terms of streaming unless you're, you know, unless you're a big act. The the thing with Spotify that, that I watched a couple of weeks ago is a limited series called The Playlist. And it talks about, and, it, and it's, you know, it's dramatized, it's acted out. It talks about the start of Spotify and how how the idea was about this, you know, this free platform to have music that people could listen to at any at any time. And they went to the record companies similarly to how Napster did earlier in the day. And they said, forget it. We've already been through this with Napster. And then at some point, the companies went, well, wait a minute. We can, maybe we can do this differently. This time around, instead of laughing them out of the room, let's make an agreement that we will work with them to license our music and, and play it the way that they want. But we want a cut of the pie. We want to be partners with this. We want to be partners in with Spotify to make sure that our artists get out there, our artists' music is being played, and whatever happens with the independent artists is is what it is. Now, on social media, you've seen Spotify wrapped everywhere, right? There was a Canadian artist by the name of Andrew Huang who put out a very pointed Spotify wrapped. He did this himself and it's and it's really cool because it really speaks to what this looks like. So when you think about a fan buying a $10 album off his website directly, that 10 bucks goes directly to Andrew. In order to, now he puts on his graphic that you need 25,000 streams to make 10 bucks. It's actually 2,500, but I mean, you know, we're not quite cutting the numbers in half. Um, 10 million streams a year for minimum wage in Canada is what's required. Man. That's like, so 10 bucks to buy an album, right? If a hundred people that are listening right now go to my website, martinmirrormusic.com, shameless plug, um, <laughs> and buy my album, you know, a hundred people times 10 bucks, that's a thousand bucks to me. If those same hundred people listen to my music on Spotify, uh, that's 0 0.04 times 100. That gives me four bucks. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, it's it's so wild to hear whenever whenever I see an article that brings up those calculations like that, it always blows my mind. And just thinking about how the the stratospheric number of streams you need just to like create actual money that you can do something with is is so problematic and i i want to get back to what you were talking about with the labels owning a piece of spotify like now mm. they don't anymore i think the labels the majors have largely divested from spotify but while they owned it it was the most horrific and problematic thing happening in the music business that not nearly enough people were talking about you were talking about how uh you know spotify and its low payouts were screwing independent musicians yeah. and that's true but the arrangement of labels owning big chunks of spotify was also screwing label artists too because it was creating this horrific conflict of interest that again was being heavily unreported where you had Spotify, you know, you had the record label, you had like Universal Sony, the record label that presumably had artists signed to their record deals and thus like was, you know, it's their job to when they approach Spotify, 
to get the best deal they can for themselves and their artists, right? Get the best royalty payouts you can get from Spotify. That's what the, you know, that's what Spotify, that's what uh, Universal, the label would want. Yeah. But then Universal, the label is doing business with Universal, the Spotify shareholder that has the opposite incentive to pay out as little as possible to fatten up its profits. I mean, in, in most situations in American law, like we would not tolerate that kind of sitting on both sides of the table arrangement in an industry. And in the music industry, it was perfectly normal for like the better part of a decade and a half. And again, it just it blew my mind that like there weren't congressional hearings and people pounding the table about this. I think I saw one lawsuit that was filed about it uh, from the folks uh, from the 19 recording folks with American Idol. But it was just I mean. Like I mean, it's been the, the madness of from of, of Spotify and what it's what it does what is done to indie artists and label artists alike is just, it's stupefying to me. It, it's not just that. I mean, it's um, you know the the whole industry is in some kind of flux that at some point has to be fixed. Because I had a recent music grad ask me a couple of weeks ago, "How do I make money in the industry today?" And I literally sat there and went, "I I don't know," you know. Touring isn't back to what it was before pre-pandemic levels, certainly not on the international levels. Um, You know, you're not making money on streaming unless you're, you know, somebody way big up. Mm -hmm. Um, And and then even then it's, um, you know, it's it's debatable depending on what your record contract says, you know, how much you're being paid out and all that sort of stuff. And then you have, you know, people that um, that pull a world tour like Shawn Mendes did, uh, you know, this this past summer. Well, how much of that in terms of what those costs were incurred by the promoters and by the label in canceling that, how much of that is going to be tried to be recouped by, hey, well, you're streaming well, so we're going to take the money from that to try to cover our expenses. I don't know. I don't know what our industry is is going to do, or how we, you know, how we move forward with that. I'm working right now with an artist that we signed many years ago to Verve about 12 years ago. Put out an album, did you know, did really well. He hasn't gotten paid in I don't know how long. You know, he doesn't. He still gets streamed on on Spotify. He still gets uh, streamed elsewhere. He doesn't see any money for that. The money goes to the label, and that's that's where it stays. This is really powerful, depressing, <laughs> pivotal, but just, but just, just really, just like really profound stuff. That I think we've been saying for like the last ten minutes. I kind of wish we weren't saying them while wearing, uh, you know, holiday lights on ourselves because I feel like some people might take this like as a video clip to be like, look at these two industry experts talking about the state of the industry, and it's going to be us dressed up like Christmas presents, and you know that's it's our legacy the to be jolly. <laughs> <laughs> that that if that you know let's lighten it up a little uh it, well i i got we got plenty of reasons to be pretty joyful because uh our guest next uh, segment's going to be terrific don't go anywhere we're coming back in two with lucas Sachs from brooklyn bowl here on break the business ryan corella here i hope you're enjoying the show and i hope that you're getting a lot out of it i do what i do because i care about creators like you a lot I've dedicated my career to helping creative professionals, entrepreneurs, and organizations move forward. I do it by hosting this program, and I'm also proud to do it in my legal practice. If you're a creative professional looking for solutions-oriented legal services to help you further your goals, I'd love to help. My firm RKPA does contracts, commercial law, copyright, trademark, and more. Visit rkpalaw.com to learn more. That's rkpalaw.com. Ryan A. Corella, PA, Miami, Florida. Streaming services for Break the Business provided by L.E.K. Entertainment. L.E.K. Entertainment is a full-service entertainment company offering everything from consultations to full-scale events and productions, including audio and video productions, voiceovers, staged theatrical productions, script and music development, and streaming services. For more information, visit lekentertainment.com. L.E.K. Entertainment wants to help you bring your story to life. Thanks for supporting Break the Business. If you have a question or topic that you want us to discuss, email us at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. 
You can follow the host, that's me, on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R, and you can follow the show at The BTB Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook, and on all major podcast platforms. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Break the Business, everybody. Joined happily by Canada's Prince of Piano and Woo-hoo. Spotify's number one fan, Martin Mayer. <laughs> Um, good to have you hanging with us and good to have our viewers and listeners checking us out wherever you're checking us out, whether it's on podcast platforms, streaming platforms, uh, Sirius XM 145, wherever you are consuming the show, we're glad to have you consuming it. I'm just, I'm thrilled to have you here, Martin. I, I, I love that uh, we, we had you as a guest and uh, you were willing to just offer even more perspective for us by coming on as a co-host. It, this, this is bringing a smile to my face, even though the topics we talked last segment were downright depressing. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, if you want a depressing co-host, I'm always available. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay as long as you dress jolly. That's right. And and I did. I mean, you know, the the jolly sweater, the the lit up lights. I mean, you can't see the lit up lights on on radio, but you know, I'm wearing We can think... feel the energy of them though, you know? If you're going to talk about something <laughs> sad, you've got to bring that energy. I think we cracked the code, Lauren. When we have Martin on the show, we know he's going to talk about like how the struggles of artists, how hard it is to collect royalties, how Spotify is screwing creators. <laughs> but as long as we bring him on in like a festive outfit, yeah. It works. I'm in. But but here, let me let me say this, and I I think this this transitions nicely into our guest for today. That you know, um, venues out there, concert halls, small venues, larger venues, whatever they may be, they're the ones that are saying to artists, "Come back. You know, we're ready for you. We have an audience here. Let's get going on that. You know, that's that's the way. Let's just." keep playing as much as we can if we can't if we can't do it online and if we can't sell records let's do shows let's go back and do concerts let's do what all of us who got into music well at least i did to entertain people because we love it right we love that whole thing of where you play a song that somebody knows and they're like yeah this is really cool or you go to the show for the artist that you love and it's like yes he's playing piano man sweet you know and that's, you get to that's feel them you can't right. feel them on the computer you can feel them in a room well and especially the the whole um you know the live streaming thing when when COVID first hit there were so many of us that when it's like i'm doing a live stream concert it was so weird to play for the longest time where you'd be like finish the song and it's like crickets yeah. you can't see anybody you can't hear anybody you can see the numbers and people are like putting up emojis but you're basically sitting there going like thank you thank you very much i think they liked it i hope they liked it you know it doesn't have that it doesn't have that same feeling to it yeah for sure martin is so right let's play shows again and more importantly let's play shows at venues that have bowling our guest this week is the director of booking for brooklyn bowl williamsburg and brooklyn bowl philadelphia which are 900 seat music venues with a bowling alley restaurant and bar why am i not there right now brooklyn bowl has been rated among the top music venues in its size category and you can find out more about our guest work by visiting www.brooklynbowl.com and by following at ld on instagram we are happy to welcome lucas Sachs on to break the business hi lucas hey guys hey, lucas. thanks for having me Thrilled to have you. Cool sweater. Not quite a holiday sweater. You didn't get the memo, but it is a sweet Brooklyn Bowl <laughs> sweater, so we'll take it. We do what we can. Yeah. All right. Music and bowling. That sounds amazing in every sense of the word. Can you tell us what the Brooklyn Bowl experience is like for an artist playing it? It must be kind of unique. It really is. I mean, you know, it's we, we sort of equate it to like an adult playground. It's you know, it's sort of all things for all people. And we mean that on the fan side. We mean that on the band side. Um, it's pretty uncommon, obviously, to have a venue that, <laughs> that has 16 lanes of bowling in New York and 24 lanes of bowling in Philadelphia right next to the stage. Um, but the energy is there. It's, a, you know, it's supposed to be for high, high volume, high energy bands is really the focus of what we're doing. We want it to feel like a party. And, you know, bands feed so much off of the fan experience and the fans' reactions. So the more we make it feel like a party for the fans, the more it feels like it for the band, so on and so forth. Um, you know, we have a lot of interesting New Orleans and, and old Coney Island sideshow 
uh, reproduction artistry and some original uh, some original things as well. So it doesn't look like your standard four wall black box concert venue where people just show up and they have a drink or two at the bar at the back. They watch the headliner often skip the opener and then leave before the show's over. We have kind of the opposite experience where people will come in early. They'll eat our award-winning fried chicken. It's Blue Ribbon Restaurant Group mm. that's uh, national. And um, they'll bowl and they'll drink, you know, Brook- local Brooklyn beer and some other beers that we have as well. Um, and then they'll watch the show. And if they want to just watch the show, great. If they want to do all of those things at once, they're more than welcome. Oh, my God. That sounds absolutely incredible. Like, can Martin, can we can we get you into this venue? I want to listen to <laughs> Martin play while I am uh, converting a a seven or a four seven <laughs> ten split. There, it took me a second to get the bowling uh, jargon back in. I feel like you'd crush at this venue, Martin. I don't know if I could get away from the fried chicken in time to get on stage. Mm. I mean, that's just you know, there's there's something about fried chicken, especially up here. We've had a whole bunch of places that just constantly pop up. I don't know how it is for you guys down there, but it's like, you know, Chico chicken. And the other day it was um, fighting chicken. You know, they're, they're using the fighting chicken from Family Guy as their logo. And you look at that and it's Amazing. like, okay, you know, that's uh, that's great. But I mean, hey, I, I would be happy to play in New York anytime. Let's do it. Absolutely. So, I mean, you were saying that like the, so the, I've, I've never been, I want to go, but you're, you're saying like the lanes are like right up on the stage. I guess it would have to be like a high energy band because like a soft band's going to get drowned out by the bowling. I can imagine Sarah McLaughlin playing and just, you know, I will remember. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. I'd have that problem too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we'll, yeah have to, we, we'll have to we, get you doing some like really like pound the pound the piano kind of songs, Martin. Right. Really get the volume up on them to drown out the bowling strikes. A little Richard style piano. Would be there you go. <laughs> um, I like your story, Lucas, because you your story is one that we don't hear enough in on the executive side of the music industry, which is a person staying at one employer for longer than five minutes, right? And so much of our industry is job hopping, looking for the next opportunity. Nobody moves on up like the ladder of a company except you. You started out as an intern at Brooklyn Bowl, worked your way all the way up to the director of booking. I'm sure there are lots of folks out there who are interns at entertainment companies or similar kind of companies and have the aspiration to maybe someday be the director of something at that same organization. Do you have any advice for them on how to get noticed, how to move up within the same group? Yeah. I mean, you know, when I first started, it was right out of college. This was a place that I always wanted to be at. I used to go to shows at Brooklyn Bowl before I was, uh, you know, even out of school. Um, and it was a really interesting place to me. And it, it was logical to try to do whatever I could to, get an internship there. I was lucky to, to make some connections during college with uh, the management team for Solive. And Solive has, you know, played Brooklyn Bowl many, many times. Uh, we even created a 10-night residency uh, called Bowl Live. So it was Solive for 10 nights over two weeks with different guests and bands opening and sitting in every night. Um, and that was, you know, it was sort of like a special one-off fly-in situation that really only our company and Peter Shapiro who started the bowl could, could come up with and convince a band to do uh, that caught my attention in college. I used to see them, you know, in upstate New York and Syracuse where I went. Um, but, you know, going to the venue and realizing that it was a special place that was unlike other ones, I wanted to get involved. I was lucky enough to stay in touch with people, get an internship that turned into a job opportunity. And, you know, once I got there, I would wear any hat that you told me to wear. You know, I, I wanted to just be a sponge. I would say that's one of the most important things for anybody, you know, regardless of what your job title is, whether it's a full-time freelance musician, an intern, um, you know, a marketing person, whatever you might be doing, being uh, a sponge where you can learn different aspects of the company that you're at or the place that you want to be at uh, in addition to whatever your role is and also volunteering additional ideas is, is really key. You know, being able to just do your job is one thing, but being able to do your job plus something else and being, you know, basically put yourself at that table. You know, you're sort of, you're in the room, but you have to pull the chair out and you have to sit down. Um, you know, mm. 
somebody will give you the initial opportunity, but you really have to prove yourself. Um, it's, it's still the case. It's always been the case, I feel like, on the business side of music, um, you know, and as well on the artist side, too. You know, you, you have to have a network, which is easy to build over time with the right attitude and professionalism, and you have to have a work ethic. And I think, you know, the network, the work ethic, and just being, being a professional person who is passionate goes a long way. And in terms of wearing many hats and wearing whatever hat they had you wear at Brooklyn Bowl to allow you to move up in that organization, I'm guessing the words, that's not my job, man, has never left Lucas Sack's mouth <laughs> as long as he's been employed by Brooklyn Bowl. That's about right. Yeah. So now you are director of booking at Brooklyn Bowl, which sounds like a cool venue. I mean, between the bowling and the fried chicken, which, I mean, my mouth and Martin's mouth has just been watering for the entirety of this yep. interview ever since you said those two amazing words, fried chicken. That that sounds like a dream job. And it sounds like, you know, and it also is a job where you're you have the position to create a lot of opportunities for artists. When you have a 900-seat venue, I imagine you get plenty of artists coming in who are represented by booking agents. But I think your venue is also the size, and you know Brooklyn's kind of a cool area, so you're probably getting a lot of artists who are unrepresented that you take a chance on. So I, I want to ask, for the artists out there who are maybe in that position and are trying to get more opportunities to play at venues like Brooklyn Bowl, what advice do you have for them to get noticed by somebody like you? That's a great question. I mean, as you can imagine, you know, we get hundreds and hundreds of emails a day in general, and a lot of them are unsolicited um, booking emails and booking requests. You know, we're really we're really cognizant of paying attention to local bands, uh, you know, that are unrepresented because talent is talent. You know, just because you don't have a booking agent or a manager yet doesn't mean that you aren't deserving of one and doesn't mean that you don't deliver a quality show that's going to be really entertaining to people. And I think that that gets lost on on some other people, you know, that work in the business where it becomes a numbers game. And it's not about the network and the artistry and nurturing a relationship with local talent. Um, something that we really value are really concise but really detailed pitch letters um, so what I mean by that is a, a short email that really lists all of the recent shows at the venues, mm. the dates, the ticket price, how the show did, who else played on the bill, the band messaging us, are they the headliner, were they the co-headliner, were they the opener for someone else, how did the show do, um, you know, and then we kind of look at that as a barometer, as a starting point. You know, we like to see all the links to their websites and social handles and then the biggest thing I think that a lot of people overlook is live concert video footage. There, it's so easy now to make a quality video as a band, whether it's from a show or you know in the basement on a nice handheld camera or even on an iPhone. Um, you know, so being able to have a good vibe as a band versus um, you know just a high quality audio recording is big for us because, like I said, we're vibe. We're it's 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 a party. Brooklyn Bowl is meant to be a party. So if you're a really great live band, that's almost more important than the quality of an audio recording on an EP that you might send us. Uh, we try to go to shows a lot. We talk to other talent buyers in different size rooms a lot. Um, now with four Brooklyn Bowls around the country, um, you know, and a theater up in, in Westchester and a festival in Virginia and a magazine, um, you know, we have a lot of, we have our hands in a lot of different places in terms of um, being exposed to new younger artists. And a lot of the time, they don't have representation or they, they have one piece of that puzzle, not all four or five or six or however many you know pieces have to be involved in that equation. So when you get that email, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll let Martin get his question in after this. He was champing at the bit there. When you get that email where somebody's making a pitch to you, what is the biggest mistake that you see a lot of artists make in that pitch email that is more likely to get that email you know to go right on read or you know right in the trash i really wish that i had uh prepped that answer with some screenshots for you but <laughs> <laughs> i would have loved that a lot of the time it's hey how do i book my band no oh. name no link no phone number or it's like hey call me i want to play and that's all you get so that would be pretty much the bottom of the of the totem pole there that's the worst you could go so it's really about just trying to make your you know, make make Lucas's job as easy as possible. Don't make Lucas have to hunt for the information that he needs. 
make either the yes or no decision something that can be made quickly. Don't don't put uh, Lucas on a, on a treasure hunt to find out about your band, and certainly don't make it something where it's, you know, hey, Lucas Sachs, very busy director of booking for two large venues. Can you tell me something that I could easily look up somewhere on the internet, which is how do I get booked at Brooklyn Bowl? Correct. Yeah. You know, one of the the interesting things of which you talked about, and and as an artist, I have to say that I really appreciate how you go about selecting artists and listening to artists and all that sort of stuff. Because there's there's been you know places where um, Ryan, you know, our mutual friend Allison, she told me that uh, she knows of venues that they will only book artists based on number of streams multiplied by Instagram followers multiplied by Facebook followers. And if it doesn't meet a certain criteria, they don't even consider listening to it. They don't even consider anything artist-wise. And I remember the first time that I heard that and I went, that is absurd. You can't you can't base an artist just on numbers like that. The numbers that you're talking about make sense. You know, how many people went there? What were the ticket prices? How much stuff sold? Who was on the bill and that type of thing? My question of curiosity for you is, how does that translate for artists who are international? You know, do do people who who tour Europe who do well there does that translate into whether you would consider them for your market? Hundred percent. I mean, you know, we love working with international artists. We have a pretty long track record of working with various Canadian artists. Hopefully, you get onto that list soon. Um, we've worked with a lot of artists from from uh, Mali and Nigeria. Um, from Sweden, you know, from the UK, of course, a bunch of Australian acts, you know, we're really, we don't, it's not a red flag for us to say, oh, you're an international artist, you might be worth a lot of tickets in Mexico where you're from, but when you come to New York, how are we going to sell tickets to, you know, to your fans, or do you even have fans here? Yeah. You know, we've worked with, um, uh, I believe they're Venezuelan, Atercio Palados is, um, an arena rock band in Venezuela and they're huge in Mexico and, and most of central South America. And we put our ads in Spanish. We, you know, sell 850 or 900 tickets right off the bat every time we've worked with them. And almost, I would say 95% of the people that are at that show are walking around speaking Spanish. Some don't speak English and they're all fans of the band who don't know anything about Brooklyn Bowl. And they're really going because their favorite band is playing a really small room and they're used to seeing them in an arena. So I think it can translate really well when you take an international act who aren't used to playing or haven't played as many times in the U.S. and you bring them here uh, in terms of how to do it. You know, the cultural export offices, you know, there's a lot of funding that I'm sure you're very well aware of on the Canadian side as well, Martin. Um, You know, we've interacted with some of those offices as well where they can sort of subsidize travel so that the yeah. bands can really get over there or they'll help them get there for South by Southwest and then they'll plan a run around it. So, I mean, New York and Philadelphia and Nashville and Las Vegas, where all of our Brooklyn Bulls are, are very diverse. Obviously, New York being the most diverse, the most crowded, uh, the most, you know, the easiest to get a different subset of person or different type of people out to any type of show of any genre in any language or any strange, you know, alternative genre of music, we have an audience for it in New York. So we're much more receptive to it than maybe some other places. Like I said, if it's a party, we're booking it. Yeah. No, that's that's great. Tell me, what, what was it like for you guys when COVID first hit and everything shut down? What was that from from your perspective? I mean, I lived it as an artist. Ryan lived it in the business. But for you as, you know, this is, this is where the income is. This is where everything happens. What, what sort of went through your mind when that first happened? You know, we, uh, we were walking into a two night run with soul rebels from new Orleans, um, a band that we've worked with since the room has been open in most of our rooms and our festivals. And, you know, they're good friends of ours and it's a really, it's a big sellout run for us every time. And, you know, it was, it was going to be great. Uh, I remember getting on the phone with their team five minutes after the NBA said they were stopping and uh, we moved the shows from the middle of March to uh, the middle of August. 
because we thought that that was plenty of time oh, man. to start moving shows to. And that was, <laughs> yep. that was the, the group think. Was, we'll have this oh, licked by August. Shows. Let's go ahead and book them and rebook them. Oh, God. The It'll hubris we all had right? back then. Oh, Yeah, so we did that with a few things. And then it went from being, you know, August to, you know, the middle of the fall and so on and so forth. And, you know, once we realized that it was going to be a lot longer, um, you know, People were getting furloughed and, you know, we were rescheduling shows left and right. I myself was on furlough for 10 months and it was, uh, you know, it was kind of a little bit refreshing to get a break from looking at my phone and computer and, you know, every second. But the, the process of booking and rebooking when you do 500 shows a year in a room yeah. to redo the same booking process four or five times can be really challenging. And then to decide whether it makes sense to pay the same amount of money and do we know what's going to happen um, so it, it was definitely challenging, but, you know, we've been reopened since last, uh, right after Labor Day of last year um, in New York, and then Brooklyn Bowl Philadelphia opened its doors for the first time just one month ago, uh, a year one month ago. So, you know, we've been able to to really retool, and, and like you guys were saying before, people are going back out. They're much less concerned. They're being as careful as they want to be, but... The restrictions are not there in terms of the city mandates and people want to go to shows and they want to experience life and joy again. And we're, we're happy that we can, that we weathered the storm and that we're there to kind of help, you know, in our little way, you know, help people have a good time. Our guest has been Lucas Sachs. He is the director of booking, (laughs) booking, I was about to say, director of booking at Brooklyn Bowl. That must must trip you up too, Lucas. Uh, Director of booking for Brooklyn Bowl, Williamsburg and Brooklyn Bowl, Philadelphia. Terrific 900-seat music venues. They got bowling. They got fried chicken. Uh, What more do you need? You can find out more about our guest's work by visiting www.brooklynbowl.com. Lucas, before we let you go, one last question that we want to send your way here. Do you have any last tips for the indie creators out there to help them move their careers forward? I think that they need to be receptive and open to different outlets, you know, play shows wherever you can talk to other bands, really try to see what's moving the needle. There's a lot of live streaming stuff that we talked about that's not working as well anymore, but the platforms that people are paying attention to, um, try to utilize that, look at whatever the newest technology is, but really focus on honing the craft. The most important thing at the end of the day is the quality of the music. And I think that that can get lost sometimes in the rush to try to um, you know, work on the business side of it. But the business will go nowhere if the music isn't good. Okay, I said that was my last question. I lied. I have another question that I think is even more important than that question. You had told us in the pre-show before we uh, went live that you are not good at bowling. Terrible. You have worked <laughs> at a bowling alley for, what, a decade? How is that possible that you are not good at bowling? I'd like to think if I worked at a guitar center for 10 years, like a few things about guitar playing would have rubbed off on me. Explain yourself, Lucas. You know, before I worked in a bowling alley, I sold cheese, and I was really good at eating cheese. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Fried chicken and cheese, best combination. That, oh that my should, god! That should almost be a special, right? I'll Fried chicken some. with melted cheese on top. Oh, like that, a that's, of that's right up there with poutine in the level right? of deliciousness. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. It's our version. Oh yes, that's American poutine. <laughs> Fried chicken with cheese on it. Lucas, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for putting up with our silliness. Don't be a stranger. We'd love to have you on again real soon. Thank you so much. I had a great time. Appreciate it. Right. Great on. To see you, Lucas. Oh man, that was that was a blast, huh? And uh, I want I am telling you when we're off the air, I'm going out for fried chicken. There's no question about it. You need a sponsor for this that is going to provide you free buckets. I of- bet we could scrounge something up. Like I I mean we got some great local fl- fried chicken joints uh, here in Miami that I think would be a great fit. There's a there's a wing, there's a chicken wings place like a block from my house that will give you 
a chicken sandwich with 13 different types of sauce on it and you get to pick. That's pretty cool. But wow. I kind of want our sponsor to be the company that you told us about. That's mascot is the, the chicken oh, the fighting chicken from family guy. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I want because I trust those people to make some really banging chicken. Break the business sponsored by fighting chicken. Absolutely. <laughs> and we, we, we could do segments where it's like me fighting the chicken like over you know a 10 minute <laughs> sequence in a bunch of scenes. And then like you think the chicken's dead, but the chicken's not dead. Yeah, I like Family Guy and Star Trek. Uh, big shocker. All right, uh, Martin, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on this show again. Let's thanks for having to the, me. Like I, I know you're, I know you're busy, and I know you got like you know career and success and everything. But like you know, keep coming back. Make Love time to. for us. Love to anytime. Thanks. Fantastic. For my thanks to you, thanks to producer Lauren and our guest Lucas Sachs for joining us this week. And my thanks to all of you viewers and listeners for checking out Break the Business. We'll see you next week.